I'd, uh, I'd like to thank Jim for his uh, efforts in the quiz every month, especially for coining that new term for galvanized Yankee, confederal, that you can find in your quiz. I think it's much better than galvanized Yankee, and I'm hoping it gets in the dictionary. I don't know what more I can say about today's program. Karen Osborne is a member of the First Brigade Band and has been for a number of years. She uh, sings in the choir. She has sung uh, in record albums. She has an undying interest uh, in both music and the role of women in the Civil War. She is uh, from Berlin, Wisconsin. She is married uh, to an ex-Marine, which uh, is a cross in itself to bear. <laughs> she is someone who I personally have looked forward to uh, greatly in coming to this meeting. And the reason why I have is because finally uh, I have put up with this guff on the buses on the tours long enough you are finally going to hear someone who actually knows the music and actually has a decent voice. So without further ado, Karen Osborne. I, I should make one correction. And if, if you can't hear me, just shout. Uh, I have sung on one record album. I will probably never do that again. It was the most terrifying and humbling experience of my entire life. Uh, it's really nice to be back here in Chicago and to see so many faces uh, that are familiar to me. I think it's particularly heartwarming at this time of year when we all have a tendency to start looking backward a little uh, at our memories and perhaps to look back a little farther to our forebears and to their times, uh, to a slower way of life, a simpler way of life, the uh, kind of life that people like to refer to as the good old days. And when we contemplate the Christmas season, very often the good old days take on a sort of Courier and Ives appearance to us with Dickinsonian characters running about and kind of a sugar-spun fantasy world. Unfortunately, if we take a little closer look, we often find that the good old days weren't so good at all. And I think that the uh, years, the Christmases between 1861 or 1862 and 1865 are a case in point. These were the patriotic years, the most patriotic. It didn't matter which side of issues you stood on, whether you were fighting for the securing of states' rights, whether you were fighting for the preservation of a nation, or whether you were fighting for the abolition of slavery or any one of the multitude of reasons that people fought in that conflict. It was a patriotic time to be alive. Whether the Civil War soldier was aware of the changes that were going to take place, I very much doubt. The nation that would survive that war was unlike the nation that had begun that war. We came through the crucible of the war, and our country would never be the same. Even our most tradition-laden holiday would change, and change dramatically. The war affected Christmas in many ways. Of course, one way was the fact that the circle of friends and family would never again be as intimate as it had been before the war. Many circles were broken by people who died during that conflict. And for those whose circle was not broken, they found a suddenly widening family circle as veterans moved west or left the country entirely. The face of the nation changed, or the, rather the face of Christmas changed, and there were many, many changes to be seen. 
We went from having a very largely religious holiday to having a folk festival. The country began to experience a Christmas that was nationalistic and patriotic in nature. And finally, unfortunately, Christmas was firmly placed on the road to commercialization that we can hope has reached its zenith today. This change occurred without the awareness of the people taking part in it, but happen it did. Uh, many people tried to cling to the past, tried to force the changes to stop, tried to hold back time, but it was all in vain. The forces that were at work were simply too strong for people to slow down or stop. And the pathos of those changes is very vivid in the writings of the generation. Now our celebration of Christmas sprang from a conflict in itself. The conflict was between the Puritan and Pilgrim refusal to observe Christmas, uh, probably in large part because of their uh, distrust of anything that was being observed in Rome, and the more liberal colonies of the North and of the South who wanted to observe this holiday. The South observed the holiday almost from the very beginning, with uh, firecrackers greeting the day or the discharge of guns. Uh, the plantation workers would greet the master and the mistress in the morning with cries of Christmas gift, Christmas gift. And if you wanted peace in your home, you would give out coins or shoes or clothing, perhaps fabric, any small thing that the workers needed. Another tradition that grew out of the South was mummery. And that's, that's an idea that is more closely aligned with Halloween in modern days. People would dress in costumes and troop through the merchant section of town and demand a token of the holiday of some sort. Of course, that became rather expensive as the years went on. And uh, we see some remnants of mummery, not only at Halloween, but in the mummers' parades around New Year's. Christmas trees had come to this country in the 30s and in the 40s with the German immigrants. But it's not an idea that caught on very rapidly. By the Civil War, if you had a tree at home, it was a small tree that would stand on a tabletop. More than likely, if there was a tree, it was a community tree, and it was dragged into the largest church in town. And then everyone would come to fix the tree together. It was a community activity. Uh, in some instances, that tree was dragged into the home of the wealthiest people in town, the largest home. And then everyone vied for the coveted invitation to come and do the tree. Trees were decorated with miniatures, miniature houses, uh, miniature animals, um, gilded nuts, fruit, perhaps pieces of cards or calendars that were clipped out and hung on the tree. And once that was done, they hung the Christmas gifts. And that's exactly what they did. They wrapped them and tied them to the tree. I want you to get a picture of someone tying a Nintendo to the top of a six-foot tree. <laughs> a little bit different. The gifts were small, they were intimate, they were personal, often handmade. Slippers, uh, mufflers, mittens, uh, perhaps a wooden carving that you had made for uh, your favorite girl or something. Those would be tied to the tree and then Father Christmas in his red velvet and his cotton batting would arrive with his scissors in hand and he would snip the gifts off and pass them around. It was a much different observance than what we see today. There's a wonderful story. Uh, Eliza Ripley, when she wrote um, the social history, social life in old New Orleans, recollections of my girlhood, talked about her first Christmas tree as a plantation mistress in 1859. They had no idea what the tree looked like. No one had ever seen one. There were no evergreens growing on their plantation, so they simply went out and dug up an althea shrub from the yard. 
and they took it inside. And the people of the plantation, the slaves, walked around with long faces for days ahead of time. And when she finally inquired as to what their problem was, they said, well, the master's going to hang us all from the tree at the big house on Christmas. They couldn't understand the difference. So there was a little backlash in this new tradition. Holiday enter entertainment was different. Uh, it centered around the family. It centered around the friends. Feasting was a large part of it. Perhaps you'd get together for some conversation, some play acting, uh, some music. If the red ball was up indicating that it was safe, you could go skating. And of course, sleigh rides, as uh, we have in one of our modern songs, were very important. And the high point of any holiday season was, of course, a dress ball at someone's home or at some uh, central location. It was a quieter time. However, the years preceding the war, there were hints that the quiet time would soon end. In December of 1859, the New York Saturday Press, in, in their periodical Vanity Fair, published a satirical editorial, and I'd like to read that for you. An individual who signs himself Richmond is in the field of advertising after a sanguinary fashion that throws his namesake of Bosworth quite into the shade. He offers, in some of the southern papers, to be one of a hundred who will give $25 each for the heads of certain objectionable northern gentlemen whose names he publishes. It seems to us the sum is rather more than a good many of the designated heads are worth. But in this matter, Richmond must, of course, judge for himself. The proposition, however, has aroused the indignation of the New York Times, which denounces it as a very brutal expression of hate. We take a different view of the affair. It appears to us that the southern parties making this offer, being evidently out of their own heads, are anxious to supply the deficiency at the cheapest possible rates and are thus emboldened to su suggest a bargain which, considering their contempt for northern brains in general, must certainly be looked upon as liberal. And just a few days past Christmas of the next year, Major Robert Anderson would move his small force from Fort Moultrie to a more commanding position at Fort Sumter. It was to prove to be the first move in a very long and painful ga game, and the New York Herald would indicate that in an editorial. And the editor added that he hoped that the Constitution would see us through to a safe ending, and closed by saying, if not, it will be many a long day before the people of the United States see another Merry Christmas. And so it was to be. Sarah Josepha Hale has been credited with a lot of, of work for Godey's Ladies Book. And one of the pieces, to her credit, was entitled A Story About a Goose a goose. It was published in December of 1862, and it began with these words. It was a clear, frosty Christmas Eve. Need I mention the date when I say that Father Christmas came upon us with a deep gloom over his usually cheerful old features, that he made a mourning wreath instead of his holly and mistletoe, and that the nation was borne down by a grief so deep and so universal that it was rather a time of national sorrow than of our great festival. The wound is yet too deep to necessitate reminding my readers of the troubled times through which we have just come. Perhaps the most deeply felt of those troubles can be summed up in the words of the sentimental ballad of the day, a very popular song uh, called The Vacant Chair. We shall meet, but we shall miss him. There will be one vacant chair. 
As the war drew, drew on, the number of vacant chairs in the United States, of course, increased. The Milwaukee Sentinel published a paragraph called A Short Family History. Every man killed in this war makes a vacant chair in some household. We realize that every soldier who is snatched up from the battlefield is missed and mourned by loving parents, sisters, and friends. It was this parting, the separation of friends and loved ones as they became soldiers, that was most on the minds of the populace during these war Christmases. In 1863, Frank Leslie's magazine published this verse. Two voices murmuring tender talk, two young cheeks touching warm and sweet, two mouths like dewy roses meet down the dim borders of the walk, one face of bronze and one of snow, and silent as their mingled breath, tender and sad as love and death, a thousand wordless blessings flow. At last a slender arm withdrawn, at last two proud heads bowed. In vain these fond lips try to speak again, and through the darkness one is gone, whose, round whose red way the bolts shall sing, and sweet to his bold heart and brain as Robin's songs through April rain, the stormy notes of battle ring. And ah, to one forever lies through changing years and life and place, the outline of a cold dead face upturned beneath the southern skies. The suffering of the soldiers of the Civil War didn't all take place at the front. There were many men who spent their Christmases in hospital and many men who spent their Christmases pining in uh, prison camps both north and south. One of the most poignant pieces that I've found from this era is, a, is um, from Frank Burr's Christmas in Libby Prison. It's a letter from his young daughter. Dear, dear Papa, it was snowing so hard today I couldn't go to school, and so I stayed at home with Mama and Nadine. Poor little thing, she's been very sick, but she's getting a little better now. You would hardly know her, Papa, she looks so thin and pale. Once this afternoon when I went over to the bed, she put her little white hands up to my face and looked up to me with her big blue eyes, which looked bigger than ever since she has been sick, and said, I love you, Clara. You look so much like Papa. Poor dear Papa, I wonder if he will ever come home. And then she said, I wonder why he stays away so long. I couldn't answer her, Papa, and I had to go to the window and look out at the drifting snow to hide my tears. When Mama came in, I sat down by her side and asked her what she meant when she said you were a prisoner of war. She told me, but I can't understand why they should keep you so long. It's a great while since we've seen you, and it seems so hard that you should be kept away from us. It's almost Christmas, Papa. Please do come home by that time. It will make us all so happy, for we love you very dearly. Christmas isn't half so nice without you, Papa. Ask them to let you come home just for Christmas. I know they won't refuse you. And if those soldiers were missed by the people at home, it was no more than the men themselves felt. William Gordon McCabe was a Virginian born in Richmond. Uh, he was one of the loyal sons of Virginia who found himself in the Confederate Army. And I'm sure that he was thinking of home the night that he penned the poem Christmas Night of 62. The wintry blast goes wailing by, the snow is falling overhead. I hear the lonely sentries tread and distant watchfires light the sky. 
dim forms go flitting through the gloom. Soldiers cluster round the blaze to talk of other Christmas days and softly speak of home and home. My saber swinging overhead gleams in the watchfire's fitful glow while fiercely drives the blinding snow and memory leads me to the dead. My thoughts go wandering to and fro, vibrating twixt the now and then. I see the low-browed home again, the old hall wreathed with mistletoe. And sweetly from the far-off years comes borne the laughter faint and low, the voices of the long ago. My eyes are wet with tender tears. I feel again the mother kiss. I see again the glad surprise that lighted up the tranquil eyes and brimmed them o'er with tender tears. As rushing from the old hall door, she fondly clasped her wayward boy, her face all radiant with the joy she felt to see him home once more. My saber swinging on the bow gleams in the watchfire's fitful glow, while fiercely drives the blinding snow aslant upon my saddened brow. Those cherished faces are all gone, asleep within the quiet graves where lies the snow and drifting waves, and I am sitting here alone. There's not a comrade here tonight, but knows that loved ones far away on bended knees this night will pray. God, bring our darling from the fight. But there are none to wish me back. For me, no yearning prayers arise. The lips are mute and closed the eyes. My home is in the bivouac in the Army of Northern Virginia. And so the face of Christmas changed. And the men who experienced it moved from the closeness of that family circle to the hard life of the soldier. James R. Braxton wrote, and so this is war, and I am out here to shoot that lean, lank, coughing, cadaverous-looking butternut fellow across the river. So this is war. This is being a soldier. This is the genuine article. This is H. Greeley's On to Richmond. Well, I wish he were here in my place. Running, <laughs> running to keep me warm, pounding his arms and breast to make the chilled blood circulate. So this is war. Tramping up and down this river my 50 yards with wet feet, empty stomach, and swollen nose. And in Madison at Camp Randall, up in uh, my home state, another soldier, Chauncey H. Cook, 16 years old, would write in his diary some of the same, about some of the same topics. About 2 a.m. I was nearly froze and the relief guard came around and I was off duty to go to my tent and get some sleep. It seems like foolery to the common soldier that for two hours we must stand in a temperature of 30 or 40 degrees when we are a thousand miles from the enemy. I had to walk and walk to keep from freezing. The mercury was down near 40 below zero and the guardhouse where we sat down between reliefs or lay down was, none, or was little better than out of doors. The health of the regiment is none too good. One man dies on an average every day. The food we get is to blame for our, is to blame for our bad health, excuse me. The boys threaten a riot every day for the bad beef and spoiled bread issued to us, and all this in our home state of Wisconsin. The one thing that I have found over again and over again discussed in the writings of the soldiers of the day is the food. Feasting was such a large part of Christmas, and part of any feast was the eggnog, and it is perhaps the one singular thing most often mentioned that the men missed. Uh, they would seek far and wide, whether they were the foot soldier, the common soldier, the cavalrymen, the officer, it mattered not. They would seek far and wide to get the ingredients 
for even a passable eggnog. Now, if you'd like to know how important that was, by 1864, the cost of even a marginal bottle of brandy was up to $60. Uh, spirits that could be had were generally commandeered by the medical corps. And so to have any alcohol for your eggnog was a real feat. Now, one officer recorded his reminiscences of a particular Christmas, and he said, Christmas came and was to be made as joyous as our surroundings would permit by a genuine southern eggnog with our friends. The country was scoured far and near for eggs which were exceedingly scarce. Of sugar we still had at that time a reasonable supply, but our small store of eggs and other ingredients could not be increased in all the country round about. Mrs. Gordon superintended the preparation of this favorite Christmas beverage, and at last the delicious potion was ready. All stood anxiously waiting with camp cups in hand. The servant started toward the company with full and foaming bowl holding it out before him with almost painful care. He had taken but a few steps when he struck his toe against the uneven floor of the rude quarters and stumbled. The scattered fragments of crockery and the aroma of the wasted nectar marked the melancholy wreck of our Christmas cheer. <laughs> that shortage of spirits was known to both sides. It was not unique to either. The 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry spent most of the Christmas of 1863 chasing Mosby, and one of the men recorded his Christmas. This morning, Christmas, about daybreak, the quietness of camp was broken by a series of yells, and that, together with the wild galloping of horses, went far to induce the belief that the Johnnies had again succeeded in breaking into our camp. All day long, the cackling of hens had proven that if last, last night's expedition did not frighten away the Salem gorillas, it did clear out the Salem poultry. Christmas, taken all together, has not been a lively day, owing partly to the absence of the spirit riser whiskey. And in December of 1864, there was a report in the Sentinel in Milwaukee. A good story is told by Captain Jack Langworthy of the 2nd Wisconsin Regiment. It should be remembered that the 2nd had been in several fights before the 6th Regiment, which had not seen service, was brigaded with it. Of course, the boys of the 2nd were frequently putting on airs, playing off jokes on the green recru recruits that had lately joined them. On one occasion, just before Christmas, quite a number of soldiers of the 2nd had been visiting the camp of the 6th and had, as usual, come off first best in playing off their jokes. To be even with them, the boys of the 6th revealed the fact that they were to have two or three large jugs of liquor, an article that was contraband in the camp for Christmas, and that the boys of the second should not even have the privilege of smelling the corks. Bright and early the next morning, one of the second boys was at, camp, uh, at the camp of the sixth and engaged a passage to Washington with Horatio Hill, who was then serving as sutler of the sixth. He made it convenient to scrutinize the movements of the sutler very closely without being himself observed. After seeing where he secreted the contraband jugs, he made all possible haste back to camp. The sutler passed the pickets safely, but when within a mile or two of camp, he encountered another line of pickets who insisted on searching his wagon. He demurred to the unusual proceedings, but it was of no use. The pickets declared that as tomorrow would be Christmas, unusual care was to be taken to prevent liquor being smuggled into camp. The jugs were found, confiscated, and the sutler allowed to proceed. It is unnecessary to explain that the pickets had been improvised by the members of the second, 
had plenty of old bourbon, and the day after the sixth boys had a good time smelling the corks. <laughs> At any cost, we would ha they would have their way, uh, eggnog. As the war dragged on Christmas after Christmas, and the folks at home and the men at front uh, sought to hold that circle together. Uh, they found that the attempt was in vain. One of the other things that was missed by the soldiers uh, was the Christmas pudding. Now, the plum pudding was such an important part of any Christmas celebration that Godey's Ladies Book developed a philosophy of plum puddings, believe it or not. And Louisa May Alcott, in her hospital sketches, tells the story of a man who entered a ward and was bombarded with pillows because he simply made the report, I say to puddins isn't plummy ones. And that was enough uh, to get you in some trouble. That shortfall, however, was made up by the folks at home. They would pack the plum puddings and other e eatables and things that the soldiers would need and, and send boxes to the front. Thomas Nast and his contemporaries uh, give us a really good picture of that happening. Uh, they showed at the beginning a simple scene with a Christmas box and soldiers getting cakes and socks and whatever out of the box. But very rapidly, uh, Nass translated that into a Stars and Stripes clad Santa Claus who was handing out goods at the front. There was a growing tendency to make Christmas nationalistic and make it patriotic. That can be seen when you read how they decorated their trees. Suddenly during the war years, there were union shields and eagles and stars. Uh, there were cutouts often clipped from newspapers of the political and military heroes of the day. Sometimes you see in uh, engravings a picture of some military hero, his picture outlined in evergreens. There was a real attempt uh, to make this a patriotic statement and make Christmas a patriotic holiday. If you look at the history of Christmas's acceptance as a legal holiday, you see a nationalistic tendency. Uh, the first state to observe Christmas as a legal holiday was Alabama in 1836. Until the outbreak of the war, only 17 other states followed suit. But during the war years, 13 states legalized the holiday. It became un-American to not celebrate Christmas. And unfortunately, there is still today remnants of that in our populace. Uh, people argue about uh, Christmas and, it, and the events that surround it. There is a tendency to believe you're slightly unpatriotic or slightly un-American. Just a little uh, national conscious that we can't seem to get rid of. Santa found himself a bone of contention in these days. He was a very handy figure for Southern parents who wanted to explain to their children why there would be no Christmas. Uh, and they used pieces like this one. I'm sorry to write, our ports are blockaded. And Santa tonight will hardly get down here. For if he should start, the Yankees would get him unless he was smart. They beat all the men in creation to run. And if they could get him, they'd think it fine fun to put him in prison and steal the nice toys he started to bring to our girls and boys. But try not to mind it. Tell over your jokes. Be gay and be cheerful like other good folks. For if you remember to be good and kind, old Santa next Christmas will bear it in mind. The North was a comfortable place for children to be during these years. It wasn't a place that was unvisited by hardship, but it was undaunted by it. Uh, if you were a lucky child and behaved well, you might get Jesse C. Crandall's patent spring rocking horse for Christmas. And that was reported to uh, expand the chest and teach a child how to sit properly. Or if you were very, very good, you'd get the Prince of Gifts, 
the Craig microscope. If you wanted to send something interesting to the soldier at, front, at the front, you could get Union playing cards. Now these were all right playing cards because they had Union shields and eagles and things on them instead of hearts and diamonds, and they had the faces of uh, the well-known figures of the day, political and military, as the face cards, so those were appropriate. Uh, you might buy your soldier a gleaming saber, or um, perhaps you'd receive ladies a nice fur cloak or a nice warm wool cloak to keep, keep you comfortable. If you were in the North on Christmas Day, dinner would consist of oysters and turkey and mince pie and Christmas puddings and cakes. It was a wonderful spread. But in the South, you can imagine what it was like. In Richmond in 1862, the Christmas turkey would cost you $11. In 1864, for the same bird, you'd spend between $50 and $100. There was deepening and growing want in the South. Now, the men in the field could help themselves to whatever they needed that was available, but of course, if you were a Southern soldier, you wouldn't want to take anything from your own people. Uh, and you might just receive a letter like this one from a woman in Nansman County, Virginia. Christmas is most here again. I've got my last calico frock on, and that's patched. Everything me and the children's got is patched. Both of them is in bed now, covered up with comforters and an old piece of carpet to keep them warm. While I went long out to try and get some wood for their feet on the ground, and they've got no clothes, neither. And I'm not able to cut the wood, and me and the children have broken up all the rails round the yard and picked up all the chips there is. We haven't got nothing in the house to eat but a little bit of meal. The last pound of meat you got from Mr. G is all eat up and so is the chickens we raised. I don't want you to stop fighting them Yankees till you kill the last one of them, but try and get off and come home and fix us up some, and then you can go back and fight them a heap harder than you ever fought them before. One of General Mahone's scouts promised me on his word to carry this letter through the lines to you, but my dear, if you put off a coming, it won't be no use to come, for will all hands of us be out there in the garden in the old graveyard with your ma and mine? Fortunately for most Southern soldiers, the Southern women had much more stoicism than that. Sarah Rice Pryor, that Christmas of want in 1864, uh, knew her husband was in prison. She had two young sons, and she determined that she would have a Christmas dinner for those boys. Now, their servant John had devised a method of making Christmas pies out of sorghum molasses and walnut meats. And she had spent $50 for a piece of corned beef and she had some peas that she'd grown. So she boiled the beef and peas, and when the dinner was all laid on the table, suddenly a troop of Southern soldiers passed, just returning from a raid, and they were starving. Their servant John had devised a method of making Christmas pies out of sorghum molasses and walnut meats, and she had spent $50 for a piece of corned beef, and she had some peas that she'd grown. So she boiled the beef and peas, and when the dinner was all laid on the table, Suddenly a troop of Southern soldiers passed, just returning from a raid, and they were starving. So she said to the boys, would you like the dinner or shall we take it to the men? And the little boys perked up and said, well, if we can carry it, let's take it to them. And their pride in carrying their Christmas dinner made it a joyous day for them, although they went to bed hungry. Food was a pricey sort of thing, no matter where you are, were in those days. Uh, at Libby Prison, if you had $12 on Christmas Day, you could get yourself a chicken or perhaps a dozen eggs or a pound of butter. 
and for $3, you could purchase one hand full of potatoes. Uh, money smuggled in was used to supplement the diet, but it didn't go very far. One southern woman, Fanny Beers, was a, ex had experienced that shortage firsthand. She was a nurse down in Mississippi, and the men in her ward said that the only thing they wanted for Christmas was a sweet potato pone. So this woman went through the countryside collecting eggs and butter and milk and sweet potatoes. She came back in an ambulance with her materials, and there was an old sergeant standing there, and he said, Ma'am, you'd best take them taters in out of the cold. Well, she realized right away that it wasn't the cold that was the problem, it was the starving men around her. So she took them into her quarters. And in the middle of the night, she was awakened by her associate who was screaming, Earthquake! Earthquake! And Fanny sat up in bed just about the time the floorboards all heaved upward, and the ugly snout and tiny beady eyes of a pig came bursting through the floor. He had smelled, or it had smelled, these goods and was coming after them. I, um, I'm pretty sure he probably made a nice Christmas dinner himself uh, from someone. The point is that in 1864, whether you were a man or a beast, the Christmas dinner was going to be almightily meager. There was a grizzled veteran of the Confederate Army who said that he prayed daily in thanks to God uh, that he had a backbone for his stomach to lean against. And that man is very indicative of that Army of Northern Virginia that last winter. The people of Richmond decided to do something about that. And every four hours at the Ballard House, they turned out 300 pieces of roast fowl or roast meat, which they packed into barrels and rushed to the front. Now, one barrel was reserved and sent to General Lee. And his staff laid out this beautiful table with the smallest birds at either end, and then it kind of fed into this magnificent turkey at the center. And then they called General Lee. Well, he stood there and he looked at the table, and then he pulled his sword out and tapped that nice big bird, claiming it as his own. And he looked the staff in the eyes and he said, would you please put it back in the barrel and ship it to the hospital at Petersburg? And of course, one by one, the gentlemen followed suit and went back to their cornmeal and bacon, uh, the usual, usual soldier's fare. The Southerners in those Christmases, at those Christmases, and especially that one, leaned on each other. The most famous gift of all was mentioned in your quiz tonight, and that was the gift General Sherman made of Savannah to Abraham Lincoln. A painful gift for the South, a painful gift for the North. It had been paid for not in gold, but in the lives of men and the lives of women and children. But it was a gift of hope in many ways. There was suddenly the hope that could be voiced that this was going to end soon, and maybe the next Christmas the circle would be closer again. Mrs. John Logan told about her Christmas of that year in her diary. She mentioned that for the first time in three years her community had a Christmas tree. And she mentions the gifts that were on that Christmas tree. And there's a departure. The usual mittens and slippers and things were there, but so were pinafores. And there were sleds under the tree and toys for the children. It was a clear separation. Suddenly we were headed down that keep up with the Joneses road and Christmas would never be simple again. It was going to be grand. Another change was the separation of the religious festival from the folk festival, and Thomas Nast played a part in this. Uh, he uh, had read Clement Moore's A Visit from Old St. Nicholas, and prior to that piece of poetry, Santa Claus was a very cloudy figure. 
he was very closely tied to St. Nicholas. He had no separate character, he had no separate characteristics, but when Moore penned that poem, suddenly we had a very clear-cut character, and Nast picked up on that, and he began a series of very famous engravings that led to the Santa Claus that we all recognize today. Another difference that that poem spelled, that's the first time that there was a Christmas story or a, Chris, a piece of Christmas poetry that didn't mention the nativity of Christ the very first time. And so we see a very clear separating the religious festival from the folk. Some of the soldiers probably missed Christmas services while they were uh, out at the front. And I hope that some of the Wisconsin boys got a copy of a, of a sermon that was published in Milwaukee. I'd like to read you the last paragraph of that. The noblest gratitude which could pervade the human heart would be expressed by a practical adoption of the truths taught by him whose birth we celebrate. His was a mission of mercy and peace. To be merciful and to love peace are the most sacred of Christian virtues. We are truly conscious of any truth only as we adopt it in our daily life and action. The nation is but an aggregation of individuals. If the people were truly conscious of the grand truths of the Christian religion, we should have no national wars. It is because the stream cannot rise higher than the fountain that bitterness and passion and misrule and bloodshed are the national characteristics of the hour. If we would save the nation, we must first save ourselves. If we would banish war and its desolation, we must first banish the instincts to wrong which thrive in the breasts of the people. And if we would demonstrate our joy and gratitude that a Prince of Peace was born to the world, we must first learn to know and cherish the principles of action he taught. Otherwise, all external testimony of gratitude is a sham. Amidst the chaos and the conflict of the war years, there were moments when these sympathies were voiced and where these sympathies shone through in the lives of men. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, in 1863, after the loss of a son at Gettysburg, wrote a piece entitled Christmas 1863, and at least part of the words are probably familiar to most of you. I hear the bells on Christmas Day, the old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south, and with that sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the household born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And the lonely soldier on picket duty on the Rappahannock would say it a different way when he went on to report that he and that rebel picket struck up a conversation that Christmas night. Soon they determined to trade goods, coffee for the rebel, corn and tobacco for the yank. Christmas greetings were exchanged, and in Braxton's words, we had bridged the river, spanned the bloody chasm, we were brothers, not foes, waving salutations of goodwill in the name of the babe of Bethlehem, and on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day in 62. At the very front of the opposing armies, the Christ child struck a truce for us, 
broke down the wall of partition, became our peace. We exchanged gifts. We shouted greetings back and forth. We kept Christmas in our hearts and were lighter for it, and our shivering bodies were not so cold. It seems to me as we look back at these Christmas years that the important thing to remember is not the changes that took place, but the fact that as the Christmas season dawns again for all of us, that when we keep Christmas in our hearts, we are the lighter for it. I wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Uh, we have uh, have to, I think, steal a line from uh, Marty Robinson since this is Pledge Week. As those of us know, for nausea, where else but here could you hear a presentation like that? I ask you. I have an award to make. It's not not the three. I wish this was a cup of kindness, but uh, in any case, it says presented to Karen Osborne for gallant service, the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago, December the ninth, nineteen eighty-eight. Thank you. Box too. Uh, now, as is our custom, we will uh, ask for any questions from the floor. Good heavens, the Christmas spirit is certainly moving through the group tonight. <laughs> no questions at all? It's, it's an interesting... I have a piece, if you would bear with me. Uh, this is a piece that I couldn't find a place for in my talk, but I, I stumbled on this and I, I think it's worth hearing. Have any of you, are any of you familiar with the parody of The Night Before Christmas that was also written during the Civil War years? Okay, you get to hear it for the first time here. Twas the night after Christmas, when all through the house every soul was a bed and still as a mouse. The stockings, so lately St. Nicholas' care, were emptied of all that was eatable there. The darlings had duly been tucked in their beds with very full stomachs and pains in their heads. I was dozing away in my new cotton cap, and Nancy was rather far gone in a nap. When out in the nursery arose such a clatter, I sprang from my sleep, crying, What is the matter? I flew to each bedside, still half in a doze, tore open the curtains, and threw off the clothes, while the light of the taper served clearly to show the piteous plight of those objects below. For what to fond father's eyes should appear but the little pale face of each sick little deer? For each pet that had crammed itself full as a tick, I knew in a moment, now felt like old Nick. Their pulses were rapid, their breathings the same. What their stomachs rejected, I'll mention by name. Now turkey, now stuffing, plum pudding, of course, and custards and crullers and cranberry sauce. Before outraged nature all went to the wall, yes, lollipops, flap doodles, dinner and all. Like pellets which urchins from pop guns let fly, went figs, nuts and raisins, jam, jelly and pie till each error of diet was brought to my view to the shame of Mama and Santa Claus, too. I turned from the site to my bedroom, stepped back, and brought out a file marked Pulve Ipecac. When my Nancy exclaimed, for their suffering shocked her, don't you think you had better love run for the doctor? I ran and was scarcely back under my room when I heard the sharp clatter of old Jallop's hoof. I might say that I had nearly had turned myself round when the doctor came into the room with a bound. He was covered with mud from his head to his foot, and the suit he had on was his very worst suit. He had hardly had time to put that on his back, and he looked like a Falstaff, half-fuddled with sack. His eyes, how they twinkled, had the doctor got merry? 
His cheeks looked like port and his breath smelled of sherry. He hadn't been shaved for a fortnight or so, and the beard on his chin wasn't white as the snow. But inspecting their tongues in despite of their teeth, and drawing his watch from his waistcoat beneath, he felt of each pulse saying, each little belly must get rid. Here he laughed of the rest of that jelly. I gazed on each chubby, plump, sick little elf and groaned when he said so in spite of myself. But a wink of his eye when he had physicked our Fred soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He didn't prescribe but went straightway to work and dosed all the rest, gave his trousers a jerk, and adding directions while blowing his nose, he buttoned his coat from his cherry arose. Then he jumped in his gig, gave old Jallop a whistle, and Jallop dashed off as if pricked by a thistle. But the doctor exclaimed ere he drove out of sight, they'll be well tomorrow. Good night, Jones, good night. <laughs> so, so the warriors weren't without humor. <laughs> I, uh, I think our publication committee should look at, at a special souvenir edition of that, I think. Are there any questions, if at all? Yes, a question. Karen, what um, were the most, uh, were the favorite carols my son? I told the people in Milwaukee last night I hadn't found any mention of Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer yet. <laughs> But they were basically many of the same carols that we sing today. Uh, o come all ye faithful, joy to the world, hark the herald angels, uh, the first Noel, of course Silent Night had come over with the Germans, that was a very popular one. Um, I'm trying to think of which ones were, were published about that time, but most of them had been published in the 30s and in the 40s and in the 50s, so they were fairly well known. One sidelight uh, o Come All Ye Faithful is found in the original band books of the 1st Brigade Band, only it's titled Funeral March, Dirge, and it was rescored in a minor key. That song was so popular and so universally known that they used it in that, uh, in that case as well. Okay. Other questions? For those of you who will be going back tonight, uh, Karen didn't point this out, but remember Borden's condensed, Eagle brand condensed milk was invented during the Civil War, was sold. So when, they're, when you're going back to make your cheesecake tonight, remember that. Karen, I want to thank you again for this most interesting talk. And next month we will remain in the civilian area. Bruce Bassalon will be coming to speak to us on after the fight, the day after Gettysburg. Thank you. Have a wonderful holiday season. And do try to take a minute, uh, if you can, to think of that man whose birth we do celebrate, who came to teach us a lesson we never really learned, but never quite forgot. Thank you, and good night.